If you haven't been with us, basically what we've started is a, a journey through the book of Joshua. We took about um, four weeks to kind of get ready to get in there, and we finally jumped into the book uh, last week, and we started looking at the first nine verses of Joshua. Basically, the whole series is called um, Living Life Without the Fear. I believe we're part of a fear culture. I believe we're part of a sanitized culture that tries to constantly sort of control us with the almost fear sort of mentality. Don't do this. Don't do that. Be kept away from that. And I believe that believers get sucked into that culture and that sometimes our faith isn't marked and our following Jesus isn't marked by a boldness and a passion to claim the promises that God promises to us and so as we journey through this book of Joshua as we look at the Israelite journey as we look at Joshua we're hoping that God is going to transform our understanding that's what we're really hoping for we saw last week that God makes four astounding promises to the people of Israel if you look in the first nine verses and to Joshua he makes these promises to them and he makes them to us even now the promise of being in the will of God. We can be in the very center of the will of God as his people. Secondly, the promise of the power of God. Thirdly, the promise of the very presence of God. The presence by his spirit. We thought about Acts chapter 2 when the spirit of God came upon the people. And that we now as followers of Jesus can be filled with the spirit of God and know his presence. And finally, the success of God. Living in a place of goodness and closeness to him where he's blessing us with so many things. And I've called this morning's sermon, if we can put up the slide. Oh, um, right ahead. Feast on this food for faith for fearless living. Feast on this food for faith for fearless living. Claiming these promises, living out these promises, like I was saying, as a result of our faith in Christ, and to live out our life to the full, is what Christ promises us. Christ promises in John chapter 10 verse 10. He says, I've come not only to give you just life. So you can hang out like everyone else. I've come to give you life to the full. That's what I think living in these promises is. Is when you're living life to the full. It's a life not defined by the fear culture in which we're immersed. A life not stained by the tragic effects of the sin that scars so many. But a life that stands out as a beacon to the life transforming power of the gospel. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, and I know some of you aren't, is your life a beacon, a lighthouse to the life transforming power of the gospel? Or is your life sucked in? to the fear culture, and there's almost like, Christian, but you don't look any different. Where is your life? Is your life standing up? I believe if you're living in these promises, if you're fighting the, with the faith necessary, if you're strong and courageous, as the Bible commands us in Joshua chapter 1, you will live a life to the full that will stand out. I think it would be so easy to race on to the next episode in the life of Joshua and the Israelites. But I feel there are some essential principles that we have not yet fully exposed and highlighted in these first nine verses. So we're going back there. Okay, we're going to read Joshua 1, verses 1 through 9 again. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. A promise made to us in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Here I said, God's almost like my son Malachi. He can say this a thousand times. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Because we will need strength and courage to fight the battle of faith necessary to claim the promises of God in a culture that's against God. We will need strength and courage to fight the battle of faith necessary to claim the promises of God in a culture that's against God. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Come with me into the book. Let, 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 let's, let's picture. Like I said last week, the storybooks of the Bible are where we're meant to just enter the story. So here we have Joshua. He's been told these promises. He's been told he needs to be strong and courageous as there will be a heck of a lot of enemy butt to kick in order to him to claim the promises that God has for him. There's going to be encounters against enemy after enemy after enemy, king after king, giant city after giant city, small city. But these are the things he's going to need to have the strength and courage to encounter in order to claim the promises of God. Now, I don't know about you, but at this point, this is where I can sort of imagine Joshua inclining his heart to hear if God has got any sort of special insights as to how Joshua could most ensure victory. Now, he's talking to God. Let's make that clear. So God could have kind of raced ahead of time and said, well, let me give you the plans of how to build an F-16 fighter. Or, or let me give you the plans of how to make an Ingram's Mac 11 submachine gun that shoots you 1,100 rounds a minute. Because those guys ain't going to have nothing on you if you come on board with that sort of thing. You know, you could kind of get, let's, let's do that. So I think Joshua's sitting there going, okay, you've told me I've got to do all this. I need all the strength and courage because I know just how much battle there's going to be, how hard it's going to be to claim these promises. Give me some clues. Give me some sort of special bits that will enable me to kind of beat these, just make it all happen. I can imagine him saying, uh, so Yahweh, uh, what troops should I use? Have you got some uh, radical new methods of battle for us? To use, I don't know if you know about the uh, Zulu people of South Africa had a new, a new way of battle. All they did was cut their spear in half and they called it the Asagai. Basically, Zulus dominated the whole of the African tribes. A new strategy for warfare. So jo maybe Joshua's going, that's how we're going to do it, isn't it, God? C come on. Okay. Nothing. Surely, Lord, you're going to give me some special plans, maybe a few of your kind of big, those angel guys, the winged dudes, maybe we can work together and sort of take these guys, anything like that? Nothing. Just these words that we read here in verse 7 and 8. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you, do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be able to do every, be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. When I was a bit younger and uh, wasn't as chubby as I've become, um, 
When I first started doing uh, work, when I first uh, left high school, I left high school and I did an apprenticeship. Me and my very close friend Kevin would basically work out for about two and a half hours a day. Um, basically, we had no home life, no girlfriends, we were just losers. So, um, me and him uh, would ride, we'd leave home at 5.30 in the morning, go and pump a bit of the old uh, ironage for about 50 minutes, have a shower, fortunately, or else it would have been really bad all day at work. Go to work all day and do the same thing on the way back for about an hour. That was basically the story of our lives, okay? Just working out, pumping iron. And uh, let me assure you, um, and you could ask a lot of ladies as well, it worked for me uh, back then. I'm not going to lie. The thing is, when I left school, I was kind of the, the sort of chubby kid, and then I grew seven and a half inches in a year. And then I turned into the rake kid. Um, the, the, like this really skinny guy. Um, and uh, it's kind of like, wow, I'm working out like a crazy man, but I'm, I'm as skinny as a rake. What's going down here? And... Um, I basically, I started putting on weight. But someone said, um, what it takes is it takes intensity. It takes focus. It takes dedication. And because you don't have a lot of money, it takes eggs. You see, growing up in Zimbabwe, the old maxi muscle and all the stuff that we buy here to kind of make it all happen cost literally millions of dollars. Well, today it'd be gazillions. No, it costs a lot of money. And there was no way um, me and my mate Kevin were affording these special supplements. But we were desperate to gain muscle. I wanted to look like the dude. You know, I wanted to look like the man. I was, I was very good looking at the time, but I wanted a body to go with it. That's what I needed. And so someone said, Eggs, egg whites, sure enough, man, eight eggs a day, bang, side of the glass, yolk there, white in there, bang, side of the glass, yolk there, white there, yolk, white, yolk, white, yolk, white, milk, vanilla essence. That's <laughs> <laughs> I'd walk into the gym. <laughs> Desperate to gain muscle, so I ate the food that would most ensure that outcome. That's what I want you to hold on to. I ate the food that I was assured was so full of proteins and essential proteins to gain muscle that would most help and ensure that outcome. And you know what the Lord said to Joshua? He said, this, this, Joshua, if you want to be prosperous and successful, if you long to enjoy the stunning array of promises that I've just laid before you, then read this, study this, live this, love this, eat this. Why do I say eat? If you look at the text in verse 8, we see a word which is written in our English Bibles in the NIV, meditate. Meditate on a day and night. This word in the Hebrew, is the word dogor. Dogor. It is used in Isaiah 31 verse 4. And listen to what Isaiah says when he uses the same word. Isaiah chapter 31 verse 4. We see this word again. Meditate. Or dogor in the Hebrew. And this is what it says. This is what the Lord says, verse 4. As a lion dogors, or maybe it was meant to be doornors, a great lion over his prey. As a lion growls, as a great lion over his prey. I had the privilege of working for 18 months in the bush of Zimbabwe. I was a professional guide. And I saw lions over their prey, growling, meditating on a yummy buffalo chop right there. 
Remember seeing a pride of lions inside a giraffe. These little kind of cubs rolling around in the blood. Door going. Meditating. On the meat. That was before them. As a great lion. Over his prey. As a lion growls. And that's the word that is used here. And a guy called Eugene Peterson. Who wrote the message translation of the Bible. Says this. Dorgo is a word that our Hebrew ancestors used frequently for write, reading the kind of writing that deals with our souls. But meditate is far too tame a word for what is being signified. Meditate seems more suited to what I do in a quiet chapel on my knees with a candle burning on the altar. Or what my wife does while sitting in a rose garden with a Bible open in her lap. But when Isaiah's lion chewed and swallowed using teeth and tongue stomach and intestines Isaiah's lion meditating his God his goat there is a certain kind of writing that invites this kind of reading soft purrs and low growls as we taste and savor anticipate and take in the sweet and spicy mouth watering and soul energizing words one careful reader of this text caught the spirit of the word when he said that Dorgor means that a person is lost in his religion. Another writer compared this way of reading to letting a very slowly dissolving lo lozenge melt imperceptibly in your mouth. Joshua, you want to take the land? You want to claim the promises? Meditate. On the word. Eat it. Live it. Love it. Read it. And how did Joshua respond? If you look at Joshua, Joshua's life was unbelievable. Joshua is a hero. Joshua was a great biblical figure. And look what happens in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. There's been sin in the camp, and they've had to re-kind of renew their belief in God. And what does Joshua do? Joshua 8, chapter 30, verses 30 through uh, Joshua 8, 30. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded to the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses, which he had written. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials and judges, were standing on both sides of the ark of the covenant of the Lord, facing those who carried it. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel. God, Joshua took these words from God to heart. Joshua did live his life in the word. He did meditate. He did chew on it and live in it and love it. In fact, we read in, jo in Joshua chapter 23, right at the end of his life, he's got words to say to those he's leaving behind, to the next generation of leaders. And what do you think he says in Joshua chapter 23, verse 6? Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Joel, Joshua's whole life, a life marked with mind-boggling victory over endless obstacles and enemies, is marked with a feasting on the word of God. One commentator writes this, In some ways, these verses are the most important in the whole book, and it is because Joshua obeyed them that he is a great 
biblical figure. Joshua is someone that we can look back, unlike Samson, who kind of had a, a massive mess up. Unlike David himself, who had a heart after God. There's this real issue in David's life where you see him sin with Bathsheba. Joshua is a great and wonderful model of living. A model that I think we need to embrace for today. And his life was marked by feasting on and loving the Word of God. Joshua knew it wasn't about his charisma or leadership or clever tactics because he was told right at the beginning, right in his first verses, about loving this truth, following this truth, being shaped by this truth of the Word. And we see that in his farewell address, like I said in Joshua chapter 3, to the people of Israel, when he's saying these final words at the end of his life, he learned this powerful lesson emphasized by another writer. Another writer says this, For all Joshua's importance to the people and to God's plan, God let Joshua know that the book is more important than Joshua. Fulfillment of God's purposes depend much more upon his word than upon human instruments he uses. The implication is that no man is indispensable, but it is God's word that is indispensable. Joshua learned this lesson so quickly, waiting for maybe some downloading of a massive plan of how to do it all. God just says this, read it, meditate on it, obey it. Don't turn to the left or to the right. Follow this word. And I want to say this, people of God, we desperately need to take this command to heart. Because I said to us before, when I, when I spoke on August the 2nd, do you, do you read it, do you blow on it, or do you eat it, talking about the Bible? One of the tragedies of modern Christianity I have sensed is that we have a disjointed or even non-existent connection or bond with God's word to us in the scriptures. Almost a non-existent relationship with the Bible. I said to you last week, the amount of people I speak to and say, how are you doing with God? I'm not doing so great. I just kind of feel distance. How are you doing in the Word? Not reading the Bible. It's like, well, hello. And that is so, it marks so many of us. Feeding on God's Word is absent from so many of our lives. It is an afterthought after glutting ourselves on the lies of our culture through media oversaturation. Listen to this. If you're not feeding yourself with that, you're being fed. And if we're not feeding ourselves with this, what is it we're being fed with? The answer is obvious. The culture we're surrounded with every moment of our lives. And it just invades our hearts. It invades our lives. It comes through so many multiple methods. And slowly but surely it can affect our whole worldview. Our whole way of thinking can be shaped by the culture around us and not by God's word. I thought of this, people are more willing to believe the fiction of Dan Brown, the quasi-biblical teachings of 80% of the Christian world, over and above the profoundly glorious truth of Scripture. The tragedy is that half of the teachers of the Bible today don't believe it, or they twist it to suit their own theology. And we seem to be able to listen more to that and nod our heads, yes, you're right, instead of going to it ourselves and saying, that's wrong. God does not promise me absolute health and absolute prosperity. That is wrong. The Bible does not say that. But we prefer to believe that than read it ourselves. We prefer to believe the amount of Christians I met in America because they started doing reading groups of, of Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. The amount of them that were just forced to struggle with the lies, the half-truths of this fiction 
because they had nothing to measure by. And I just think, why is that? Why, why, why is this wreaking havoc in our lives? The thing is, what happens if we're not feeding on this? If, kind of let's work with the symbolism of feeding. If we're not feeding on this, if we're not like Joshua, feeding on this, what happens is we become emaciated. We become withered, followers of Jesus, being kicked about by our enemies and unable to engage in the battle necessary for us to claim the glorious promises offered to us in Christ. There's all these promises, but we're thin, bony, unhealthy Christians that aren't feeding on this feast that's before us and we're unable to claim them. Because God's words would be the same to us as it would be to Joshua. Whatever battle you're engaged in, whatever it is, if you're wanting to live a missional life that makes a difference to the globe, a missional life that makes a difference to Watford, if you're wanting to mark your relationships instead of being marked by your relationships with those that don't follow Jesus, you need to feast. Eat this. You need to feast on this. Last week I emphasized that when you look at God's commands to Joshua to be strong and courageous, the strength and courage comes from our faith. It doesn't come from lots of eggs. Our strength and courage doesn't come from kind of beefing ourselves up and saying, I will be stronger, I will be stronger, Jesus, I'm going to take it. It doesn't come, it comes from faith. Our strength and our courage comes from faith in the startling promises of God. But it is in these scriptures that we find the truth that feeds our faith. Do you hear what I'm saying? We need faith to believe the promises in order to be strong and courageous, to live a life without fear. But the food for the faith to believe the promises is this. The truth that feeds our faith, that transforms our understanding and reminds us again and again and again of all that God has done through His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, for His people, is in this Word. Can I promise you, from page one to the very last page, God's heart is so evident in His desire to draw us back from our own rebellion, His desire to love us, His desire to show what a loving, redeeming God He is, but a God of justice who will deal with those who are against His law. But His love for us, His great desire for us, from page 1 to the very end, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 21, it goes on, Revelation 22, I think, let me not be wrong. It goes on and on and on about the promises of God. And therefore, if we want to be full, if we want to be full of faith, we have to be feasting. We have to be eating the Word of God. I believe in the Bible is where you hear God most loudly, where you see Christ most vividly, and where you find hope most truly, and where you discover guidance most perfectly. Aside from a personal, radical Encounter with Jesus where He shows you Himself and His person. The other place where we encounter Jesus is in His Word. And sometimes I wonder and I ask myself, why do I struggle with lethargy and apathy and inconsistency in my pursuit of Christ? It's because I'm not eating. It's because I'm not eating. Maybe that hits home with you today. Why is there a lethargy? 
What I mean by that is a slowness, a kind of half-heartedness, an apathy, no feeling, no passion, no desire for God. An inconsistency, up, down, up, down. Maybe you're not eating. Maybe you're starving yourself to spiritual faithlessness. And that's not the way we're meant to live. How is your feeding? Are you getting fat on this food for faith and rising above the lies that suck us into a culture of fear? Are you cracking open the eggs, mixing it with the milk and gulping it down in order to gain spiritual muscle, faith muscle? Are you? Do you know what? I lead this church and sometimes my own relationship with the Word is so far from what it should be. Because if I did see it as the very food, the very foundation, the very essence of my faith in God's promises, I know I would handle it so differently. And maybe that marks many of us this morning. But I believe there's a way to feast on this food for faith. I'm going to give you four things that I think. How to feast on... We're about six slides on. How to feast on this food for faith. I believe just in these two verses, verses 7 and 8, God graciously instructs Joshua and he tells us today graciously four fundamental factors for feasting rightly on God's word. Four things. Firstly, we are to know God's word. Do you know what that implies? What does that imply? Sorry? You've got to read it. Now it doesn't say know the cover. All of us have different titles and covers on our Bible. God's not saying, no, the cover. Oh, mine's the NLT with the uh, different writing now. Oh, mine's a message. It's blue, gray with a bit of white. Oh, mine's actually got uh, Psalm 119 verse 118 on the front of it. So I know my Bible. No. Get in it. Know it. Study it. Read it. Be constantly looking at it in order to fulfill the command of having it as a guide. Do you know what that means? The Word of God, the laws of Moses written down were placed in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. I believe Joshua was so deliberate in following this command, so desperate to live with faith in the promises of God, that I can imagine him day after day. Remember, not everyone in the Bible days, in fact, no one had a copy of these unless they were extremely wealthy or they were a king or a scribe. And I can imagine Joshua saying, go get the book again. Let's read the book. Darling, kids, in fact, neighbors, let's read the book. Let's read the book and get it and read it and know it. I had a conversation with a, uh, a Mormon young guy two weeks ago. What a fantastic guy. Believing what a lie. But my oh my, if God hadn't worked in my heart when I was first born again to study the scriptures the way I did, and I could tell you about that if you want one day, a bit kind of over fascination really, he would have taken me out. Because that man knew his Bible. That's normally why we go sprinting away from the Jehovah's Witnesses when they rock up at the door. Because they know ten times more than we do. Because for us, it's just a casual thing that you're supposed to do. But we don't feast on it. How well do you know your Bible? How well do you know your Bible? So we start. The way to feast on it is know it. Read it. Be regularly in it. Joshua 1 verse 8. God says to him this. I love this. Do not let this book of the Lord depart from your mouth. Speak 
about the Bible. How often when you're gathering together, in fact, I know how absent it is because I'm normally part of these conversations, but how often when we gather together as Christians, just chatting and hanging out, having a cup of coffee or whatever it means, are we talking about the words of the Bible? Are they on our lips? It was said of many of the Puritans, I don't know if you know of John Bunyan, he wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. Does anyone know of John Bunyan? He wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. It was said of him that if you cut him, if you cut him, his blood would be Bibline. His blood would be Bible. That's what they said of the Puritans. His blood would be Bible. Clearly, Joshua was to be conversing about the Bible in his normal day-by-day context. Hey, wife, you know, blessed are you because of this promise, because of that. I know I can't do this and this. Hey, you guys, soldiers, let's talk about this. What's a strategy for wisdom? How do we behave the way the Lord wants us? What are those Ten Commandments again? Let's go over them. Let's talk about them. In every contact, I can imagine Joshua on his lips with the words of God, with family, with soldiers, with friends. Does that mark us? Does that mark us? Thirdly, meditate on God's Word. This implies reasoning about, thinking about, digesting, overlooking, relooking, cutting through words, taking time out to wow, maybe go to an internet site that actually has commentaries and original Greek and original Hebrew. And studying these words and saying, what is God saying? And meditating and thinking on it. Biblical meditation is the practice of pondering, considering, and reflecting on verses of Scripture. In total dependence on the Holy Spirit. That might actually be a slide. Next. Okay, it's not. Biblical meditation is the practice of pondering, considering, and reflecting on verses of Scripture in total dependence on the Holy Spirit to give revelation of truth and meaning. Meditation is inwardly receiving truth, not just hearing it, but taking it in. It is feeding on Christ, the living Word. As we meditate upon God's Word, there becomes a fresh understanding which heals and cleanses our minds, which feeds and satisfies our souls. Meditation is a digestive faculty of the soul where we chew on it and feed our very inner being meditate fourthly obey it you're not reading it you're not knowing it you're not studying it if you're not obeying it if part four is not fulfilled part one two and three is obviously not happening the last element in this list of requirements is the most importantly don't only know it don't only speak it but obey it I love this thing, not turning to the left or to the right. In Proverbs 4, verse 20 to 27, which actually has the great verse, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. That whole section of scripture is about not turning to the right or to the left, but obeying, trusting that God's promises are better than the lies of culture and that to have one relationship and to pursue that and to try and be a virgin till you're married is better than all the lies of sex and all the pleasures that apparently it promises. Maybe, just maybe, God's word is right, so I'm not going to turn to the right or to the left, trusting that maybe the way I should handle my business is according to the principles of Proverbs and that I shouldn't try to get a little bit of a side here or, or dodge the tax man here. No, I'm going to believe the promises of the word. I'm not going to turn to the right or to the left. I'm going to obey it. I'm going to obey it. Be 
because I believe it. I'm reading it. I'm meditating on it. I'm studying it. It's forming my insides. Psalm 1, do not walk in the way of the wicked, but be like the man who plants himself by streams of living water, who is fed, that even in the dark seasons, even in the season of winter, he bears fruit. That should be the story of our lives. Even when it's dark, even when it's lonely, even when it's difficult, we're still bearing fruit from the scriptures because we're living it and obeying it. That should be what marks our lives, people of God. There's people in this room that don't know Jesus, that are watching our lives every Sunday and other times they're with us. Do our lives mark and confirm what we say? Because they're watching. I finish with this devotion, fascination, contemplation. Would these verbs describe your relationship with God's Word? Devoted, fascinated, contemplating, thinking about. Get eating, start feasting, and I promise you it will alter your life. Get eating, start feasting, and it will alter your life. While I was preparing, I really felt the Lord do something. And I'm running over time, but it's okay because we started really late. I'm going to take five minutes. The Lord really laid on my heart something that is so essential for us. Okay? Basically, it's sort of an aside. Don't fear believing in ancient truth. I can look some of you in the eyes today. Some of you fear the fact that you say you believe in this. Is that true? Simon, you're telling me to believe in a, a really, really old book that's written in a very different language. I know because the Spirit told me many of us fear believing the ancient truth. Of, oh, that's a load of rubbish and jargon. and. <laughs> Let me say this and start with this. I have unfaltering faith and absolute certainty that this is God's word without fault or error that I hold in my hands. There may be some translation issues, whether there should be a comma or a colon or a semicolon, but the word itself is God's very word. I have unfaltering faith. And if you need to look to me to say something, well, my pastor is unfaltering faith, and I hope I'm not the only one, but I have unfaltering faith. And I hope that that would give you extra desire to say, well, if Simon or whoever can believe, I have unfaltering faith. And certainly that this is God's word. This is God's word. Emphasis on God. This is God's word. This isn't a bunch of editors going, let's put some fancy stuff together. This is God's word. It's a sword. It is truth. It is himself. His very self. Yahweh. I am. Ego and me. Inspiring people to write his very words. You may not even comprehend the immensity of the battle of ages for the divinity, the truthfulness, and the authority of the Bible. This thing has been chopped and cut and attacked and burnt for years, right from the very beginning. This part's not right. The word's in red. That's not Jesus. Jesus can't walk on water. God can't create the world in seven days. Oh yeah, Are you God that you can tell God what he can't do? Do you think your wisdom, you puny PhD times 10 person, can tell God what's wise? Please get over yourself. Since the enlightenment, men think this is bigger than God. It's a lie. God is bigger than this. But we seem to go, no, they're right. They're right. You know, when Dan Brown found the gospel of Thomas, that's more right than the Bible. It's a, it's a funny little gospel thing that is secret, so it must be real because it's secret. It's a lie. People have given their lives for us, and I am not exaggerating. People have given their lives for us to possess these Bibles that gather dust 
on our shelves. William Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake in 1537 at Vilvoorde in Belgium because of his unflinching desire to give the word of God to the common Englishman so that you and I could read it in English. His life was spent, and I quote his words, to defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spared my life, ere many years, I would cause a boy that driveth the plough in the field to know more of the scripture than the Pope himself. Divinely governed flow. Look quickly with me at a verse at the end of Joshua. If you look at Joshua 24, verse 26, don't worry about it, don't, because we don't have time. Joshua says, he wrote these words. What that is, is the process of canonization. The word of God is growing because God is speaking to Moses. God is speaking to Abraham. God is speaking to Joshua. God speaks to the Levites. God speaks to these individuals over time. And the word of God grows. And what we have is a divinely governed flow. Five parts. One, two, three, four, five, six. Revelation. Our God wants to be known and reveals himself perfectly in his son and divinely in his word. First things first. God wants to be known. We don't serve a God that is distant and false. We serve a God that has revealed himself perfectly in his son and divinely in his word. Point one. God is sovereignly in control of revealing himself. Point two. God has inspired. Second Timothy 3 verse 16. Every word is God breathed. Second Peter 1 verse 20 verse 21. The authors were carried along, inspired, driven by, affected by, so that through their own personality, as the quill touched the paper, the Spirit of God was saying the very words that He wanted us to hear for all of time. Point one, revelation. God wants to be known and has revealed Himself perfectly. Point two, God is thoroughly, completely, and absolutely present and inspiring. His words are the words that were written. Secondly, the protection, the discoveries of things, and the persecution that has taken place, and yet this lives on. It's been guarded, it's been protected. There are more documents supporting this as an ancient, as an ancient document than anything, probably by 70 or 80 fold. It's the most preserved ancient document. Fourthly, translation. If you could understand the devotion, even the awe of the scribes, what would happen is 14 scribes would write word for word, and then they would get to the word Yahweh. Every time they got to the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, they would stop, they would pray, wash their hands, come back, write the word, stop, pray, wash their hands. And then they would check it. The scribes, a group of scribes would check it, not only by going down, but going across. If one word was out of place, not necessarily the wrong word, the wrong spelling it was out of place going both latitude and longitude thrown away because they loved the word God was there while it was being translated the men and women who are devoting their lives to make sure that we get this open your book if you find an NIV or particularly a study Bible and look at the number of names involved men and women from across the globe men who know Hebrew 10 times better than the way I know English Men and women who know Greek and know Aramaic in such a degree that you just couldn't comprehend. They are translating this and God is sovereignly over them. The selection of these books. There are books called apocryphal books and pseudepigrapha. Those books are not part of the Bible because God didn't want them to be. God chose. God was there when they were selected. God was there in the, in the council of Carthage in AD 387 when he sat with the men that were there and his spirit hovered over him the way it hovered over the creation of the world and he said, that one's in. That one's not. God was there. Finally, the author of this very book sits with you as you read it. 
God is there in illumination. The very author of these words, these living words, if you're filled with the Spirit of God, God is there. I have absolute faith that this is God's Word. Because God revealed Himself, He inspired, He protected, He was there in the translation, He was there in the selection, and He's there beside me as I read it. Don't have fear that this is God's Word. We want to be an ancient future church. It's one of the things we want to be. Thoroughly linked with the ancient truths that have marked us. But understanding that the world is changing rapidly. And as we link ourselves and hold on to that truth, we adapt some of the things we do without ever letting go of that in order to impact this generation.